Believe in yourself, reach out for your dreams. Don't surrender, there is more than it seems. Hold on and fight, follow your heart. This is your way. Love is what you make of it. Hi, this is Dr. Joe Luciani, welcoming you to another session of self-coaching, where real life emotional struggle, whether it's depression, anxiety, relationship conflict, losing weight or simply handling life's challenges are all addressed, teaching you to become your own best coach. Well, sad to say, but once again, my lovely daughter and co-host, Lauren Simonian, will not be here to join us, but she promises next week, and as they say, hope springs eternal. But today I wanted to talk a little bit more about the whole concept of self-coaching, where it came from, and how you can begin to apply it more directly to yourself. The, the origins of, of my philosophy of self-coaching go way back, uh, back into the, I guess, the 80s, late 80s and 90s. I was more of a traditional therapist. I felt that I just wasn't helping my patients. I mean, I wasn't being as effective as I wanted to be. I wasn't getting the results that I wanted. And I was being a bit greedy and I was being a bit impetuous. It didn't occur to me that, that basically I was conforming to other views, other training that I had had. I had really never found my voice until, until I got a phone call from a cousin. And he had been struggling with anxiety for some time and was on medications and couldn't stop shaking and had been to psychiatrists, psychologists, and he wanted to come in and talk to me. Since he was my cousin, of course, I, I didn't take him on as a patient, but I decided that, you know, of course, I need to talk to him. Now, the advantage here is that I didn't feel hobbled by traditional doctor-patient relationship. So I took the gloves off, and he and I sat down, and I was able to be you know, really in his face about a lot of his procrastination, a lot of his whining about things. Uh, and he was, he was really mired in this kind of powerless impotence. I can't do this. And no, no, I can't. It's too hard. And I was able, since he was my cousin and not my patient, I was able to really more or less, you know, treat him like you would maybe an athlete on the bench who's afraid to go in the game. And, and I started to really confront him in a very didactic and, and energetic exchange. And I started to feel differently. I started to feel like I had a lot to say instead of sitting back and taking notes and then transcribing those notes and reflecting on those notes. I was right there. I was present. I was with him in these sessions. And, and I was able to be more effective. Little by little, he started to get it. Because I wouldn't tolerate his whining. I wouldn't tolerate his passivity or his powerlessness. And I just wouldn't have it. Just as a coach wouldn't have that player sitting on the bench refusing to go in the game. So in a sense, and that's kind of a, a, a brief outline of how the concept of being a therapist coach, a psychologist coach, rather than just a psychologist came to me. But I also realized 
that was my voice. For me, I need to be involved. And I can't allow the passivity of depression or anxiety within a session. I need to have that really in front of me so that I can challenge it and challenge it in a way that doesn't allow someone to kind of squirm away from their responsibility. Because ultimately, what does a coach do? Well, a coach inspires. A coach causes an urgency toward action. And ultimately, that person gets off the bench and gets into the game, fired up, inspired as they run into that game. Well, therapy isn't that different. Sure, it's different in a lot of ways. But basically, when we're on that bench in life and we're just afraid to get off that bench, which is being stuck and mired in insecurity-driven thinking, the ruminative aspect of our own, our own neurosis, it really does require that we understand the need for action, psychological action, sometimes physical action. But if you're not going to take responsibility for that action, then you're stuck on that bench. And therapy for many can be a bench experience for years and years, because essentially, as you dissect and dissect and dissect, looking for the answers and the truth that will set you free, ultimately you find one truth after another after another. And lo and behold, the truth doesn't set you free. So what the, you know, what the, you know, what's wrong here? I went back and I found out that my potty training was too strict or too, too lenient, whatever. But I'm still doing the same old neurotic stuff. I'm still worrying myself to death. I'm still stressed. I'm still anxious. I'm still moody. I understand where it comes from, but why am I still struggling? And this is a very important point. The reason you're still struggling is because, simply put, the truth will not set you free. Now, that's not to say that your history and your truth isn't important. Of course it is. It can illuminate the origins and why you have been sensitized in the present. And by sensitized, I mean you have been habituated. There have been patterns of struggle and defense and compensatory strategies to handle life, all of these emanating from those early truths, yes. But they do exist in the present. And that's what's important. You see, the past, everything that's happened to you up until this moment is reflected in this moment. So when a patient comes to me with problems, those problems are both here and now problems, but they also reflect the historical aspect of those problems. So when, when, when I tend to veer away from the, the history taking of one's problems and deal more with the here and now present tense of those problems, I'm not ignoring the past, but I'm looking at the past as it expresses itself in the here and now actions, reactions, and problems of the patient. So for yourself, it's important to understand that the problems that you're having reflect a kind of, of passivity of thinking where the habituated past is representing itself and influencing you in the present. I call this insecurity-driven thinking. And the insecurity was laid down years ago, typically in our developmental years. 
And that insecurity does become habituated. It becomes patterns in our brain, in our psyche. I mean, literally in our brain, this is part of the neuroplasticity that we learning changes the actual fabric and, and organic chemistry of our brains. So we have conditioned ourselves based on our developmental history to become the person that we are today. And if that person that we are today is susceptible to anxiety and depression, well, it's because of that shaping and the patterns that have influenced and led to the present. So here we are in the present. So what do we do about the habits that are kind of overriding a more neutral and wholesome present? Because in the present, if we could strip away all those habituated negative and neurotic patterns, you'd have a real shot, wouldn't you? You'd be in the moment, you'd be present, you wouldn't be reacting to past knee-jerk, insecurity-driven kind of reactions to things. You would be in a neutral, positive present. Well, positive in the sense that that there's nothing wrong with the present. The only thing wrong with the present is that we tend to interpret and give it a spin. And that spin, again, is based on that historical shaping that took place through our lives. So self-coaching, my, my philosophy of self-coaching is we need to treat anxiety and depression not as mental illnesses. Now, I know that offends a lot of people, but it's the language that bothers me. When, when we say mental illness, you know, an illness is something you catch, you know, like a virus. You step on a rusty nail and you get tetanus. And, and by calling it an illness, it makes you feel, feel victimized. You know, you, you, you become the victim of a virus. Let's get rid of the word illness because it makes you too passive. It leaves you in that back seat. And let's get you up in the front seat behind the steering wheel. So one way to do that is let's just get away from the concept and the notion that anxiety, depression, emotional struggle are mental illnesses. Let's, let's get away from that just, just for a moment and think of anxiety, depression, emotional struggle as habits. Yep. And I know that sounds heretical, but nevertheless, bear with me a second. You see, we know about habits, and this is why it's such a more valuable concept to work with, because all habits are learned, and all habits can be broken. So what am I saying? I'm saying that anxiety, depression, emotional struggle, yes, they are habits. And as they become reinforced, then we begin to suffer. The habit becomes stronger. The habit tends to steer our lives, and we're again back in the back seat rather than behind the steering wheel. And it's the habituated nature of our own insecurity-driven thinking that is steering our, the course of our life. Let, let me give you a, a little cute story that will help bring this home. Let's imagine you, you have a, a, a patio and you go out to your patio to read your newspaper. I guess people don't read newspapers anymore, but... We do have our iPads and you go out to your iPad, you know, my daughter here, she'd be yelling at me for being such a, a baby boomer. But you go out on your patio with your iPad and you're reading the paper, not the paper, <laughs> excuse me, the iPad. And you notice a little pigeon milling about. 
and you say, oh, isn't that cute? And you, you're eating a bagel and you throw them a few crumbs and you go back to reading your newspaper. So you go out the next day and you go out to your patio and you sit down in your lounge chair with your iPad and you notice that your, your little pigeon has brought a buddy along. And you're delighted with this. Isn't this cute? These little guys walking around and you throw a few more crumbs. By the end of the week, you go out to the patio and you can't even get to your lounge chair. There are just hundreds and hundreds of pigeons milling around, doing all the stuff that pigeons do that we don't like. And, and you're standing there saying, what can I do about this? So you, you give me a call and you say, Doc, what am I going to do? I have hundreds and hundreds of pigeons milling around. I don't know what to do. Well, I would have one bit of advice for you. Stop feeding the pigeons. You see, the pigeons represent the habits, the habits of insecurity, the neurotic worrying, the neurotic stressing over things, the anticipatory anxiety of things that may or may not happen. These are your pigeons. Now, if you feed the insecurity-driven pigeons, how do we feed anxiety, depression? How do we feed our own pigeons, if you will? Well, we feed them with crumbs, and those crumbs are doubts, fears, and negatives. And when we allow ourselves to succumb to the insecurity-driven doubts, fears, and negativity, we are just as culpable as sitting in that lounge chair feeding the pigeons and then complaining about the pigeons. So when you complain about being worried, worried, when you complain about being depressed, when you have a, a down mood and you complain, what are you doing? How are you feeding? And so right now you begin to first understand that you need to get in touch with your way of feeding your pigeons. One way that most of us fall prey to is our passivity. We, we are allowing the reflexes and the habits of the past to more or less override our own consciousness. So, so it's really a matter of this, this other voice within us, not a real voice, but this other insecurity-driven voice. We'll call it a voice for, for now. And it's the voice of insecurity that's, that's more or less deciding the direction of your day, of your life, of your mood. And so insecurity takes over. And your passivity is oftentimes not even aware that it isn't you that's steering your life, your day. It is insecurity. And if insecurity is steering, then insecurity is throwing crumbs to the pigeons, the doubts, the fears, the negativity. And you're just sitting back in a more or less numb state, allowing insecurity to override any consciousness. You're not present. You're not in the here and now. You're not mindful of a neutral present. You, you are more or less entangled in the insecurity reflexes and habits that are now owning you. So what are you going to do? Well, for starters, what you need to do is you need to realize that there really are two parts of you. 
Now, I'm not talking schizophrenia. I'm talking there is the reflexive, habituated voice, and we'll call it a voice because sometimes we, we talk about our, our thoughts as if they're, they're voices. And there's the voice of insecurity. That's the doubts, the fears, the negatives. You know, when you hear yourself saying, oh, I can't do that and whining, whining, whining. Well, that's the voice of insecurity. But then there's this healthy voice, this can-do voice, this optimistic voice that, that is more involved with handling life. So, so let's say that there are these two parts of you and, and all of us or most of us. And it depends on which voice you're listening to. Now, when insecurity speaks, it can overrun the healthy, mature voice. And we wind up listening to what insecurity says. Oh, I can't do that. It's too hard. And then we become that insecurity-driven thinking. We become that. So what's the first thing you can do? Well, the very first thing you can do is realize this dichotomy. And the next time you find yourself in an emotional struggle, you know, we need to be cognizant of the fact that thoughts precede feelings. And when you're feeling out of control, when you're feeling down, when you're feeling anxious, you need to check out those thoughts and then ask the crucial question, who in me is thinking these thoughts? Is it me, my healthy, mature voice, or is it my insecurity? Now, you may not think this is a profound things to have to do, a profound thing to have to do, but keep in mind, if you can distinguish that this, in fact, this thought I am having at this point is, in fact, coming from my insecurity, my habit of insecurity, then at least you're in a position of choice. You see, because then you can dig your heels in and say, well, uh, if this is insecurity speaking, do I go along with it? Do I agree with insecurity reflexively without thinking? Or do I impart some consciousness? I call it active mind. And I impart some consciousness into the equation and dig my heels in and at least, if, if not stop the insecurity from steering your life, at least make, it, make a hesitation, give you time to catch your breath. Do I need to worry about this? Do I need to be anxious over this? You're in a position of choice. You can say no. And that's, that's what's so important about this is our, really the first step is differentiating facts from emotional fictions. And insecurity speaks in emotional fictions, takes the doubts, the fears, the worries. These are all fictitious things of what may happen or of how you can't trust yourself to handle things, things of chaotic nature where you will start to decompensate and fall apart. These aren't facts. These are predictions of insecurity. They are anticipations of insecurity, but it's not you your healthy thinking. So you've got to grab the healthy part of you and at least stick yourself right in the middle and say, is that insecurity or is it me slash healthy mature? 
if you decide that it is insecurity-driven thinking, then you are in a position to at least, at the very least, like with the pigeons, stop feeding those pigeons. Now, that takes a firm act of will. Now, for a lot of people, that's not such an easy thing to do because there's a lack of self-trust. You've come to rely on insecurity to give you the illusion of being protected. You know, the compensatory kind of uh, controlling strategies, you know, to kind of worry and anticipate and ruminate and panic and all these things are really compensatory, trying to help you with your insecurities. But with self-trust, you're willing to take a risk. You're willing to take a risk and believe that you'll handle what's coming. You see, that's what the here and now present mature healthy mind is capable of doing. It's capable of differentiating what is emotional fiction and what are the facts of your life, and then to deal with the facts of your life. Now, the facts of your life may be challenging. Certainly, circumstances can be very challenging. You know, getting bills, uh, having an operation, uh, losing a loved one, uh, relationship consequences. Facts can be very difficult to deal with. But insecurity deals with facts in a very different way then the healthy, mature, active mind can deal with those facts. So where insecurity may lead you to melt down and catastrophize and throw your hands up and become totally impotent, dealing with the consequential facts of your life puts you in a position to be effective, to be able to navigate with that self-trust in a way that Maybe you don't have all the answers in the moment, but you have the fortitude and the conviction that by staying centered with yourself and with your resourcefulness uh, and your instinctualness, that, that you have the capacity to get by, as you always have, as you always have done throughout your life. Insecurity says this, this particular problem that's confronting you right now will be the end of the world. So insecurity catastrophizes, catastrophizes by nature, whereas the healthy, mature you recognizes that step back from the emotionally driven, insecurity-driven thinking, risk some self-trust, and even if you don't have the answers in the moment, but to risk believing that you will find an answer. And that's what, that's what self-trust does. It's a willingness to believe in yourself. And yeah, it's a leap of faith. But you know, whether if you can't figure something out, whether it's, it's uh, of small consequence or, or monumental, if you don't have the answer, then you have to believe that answer will find you if you are receptive to it. And that's critical. Because you're not receptive to wholesome answers if you're panicking, if you're being impulsive, if you are overriding your active mind and replacing it with just throwing more and more crumbs to the pigeons. So we, we stop the process of insecurity by first acknowledging the difference in our thoughts, differentiating whether those thoughts come from a place of insecurity or a place of healthy, mature thinking. Once we do that, then we are in a position to make our choice and separate ourselves from the 
the vice grip, the headlock of insecurity, and we're willing to take that leap of faith toward making a decision that we will handle what's coming our way. Now, in terms of finding the solution, you know, the, with self-trust, there's, there's always a way. You know, that you can go in the front door of a house, the side door, the back door, the windows, the base. There's always a way. So the optimistic, self-trusting, healthy thinking person recognizes that there, there are ways. And maybe sometimes you have to wait for that way, that answer to reach you. But in the meantime, you're not giving up on yourself. You're not capitulating to insecurity. And you're not driving anxiety and depression and panic. Because once you have an optimistic belief in yourself, then this is a tonic to the psyche. The psyche then believes that it's a matter of time to just rely on that self-trust and the answers. If you don't find the answers, they will find you. And I know that sounds a bit scary for someone who likes to be in control or to over-control life. But the simple truth is that once we relinquish our need for insecurity-driven solutions, which aren't solutions at all, they're more or less ways to overcompensate insecurity by worrying, by panicking, pushing people away, insulating, withdrawing from life. You know, all of these strategies don't really answer. What they do is they just offer a veneer of protection. It's the healthy, mature thinking mind that decides that, you know, enough with these pigeons. I want my patio back. And it takes some active discipline and self-trust to reclaim your patio. And your patio, of course, is that pristine place where you can go to and live your life in that moment. To get back in that chaise lounge and Get your iPad and read your newspaper unencumbered by feathers and fowl and all that kind of stuff that pigeons bring. So in a sense, this is what self-coaching is. It's a way to not capitulate to the knee-jerk impulsivity of insecurity. It's a way of taking charge. So we are coaching ourselves to, to fight that good fight, to be able to be courageous, to be able to endure to be able to be patient, and to be able to realize that with an optimistic outlook, that the, the future is, is something that we can handle. We don't have to anticipate what's coming around the corner. Why not? Because we feel whatever comes around that corner with healthy maturity, we'll deal with it. We'll handle it. That will liberate you from the stress that produces the anxiety, the depression, the emotional struggle. So far from emotional and mental illness, far from that concept that you are the victim of some outside nefarious infection of sorts, self-coaching puts you back in the driver's seat. Habits, not illness. All habits are learned. All habits can be broken. What am I doing to break these habits of insecurity? The doubts, the fears, the negativity that just seem to have a life of their own. They only seem to have a life of their own because you've just taken a back seat and allowed the impulsivity of insecurity to reign uncontested until now. Self-coaching is a way of coaching yourself to take the reins.
to steer in a direction that makes more sense. But self-coaching does require inspiration. You have to inspire yourself to fight the good fight, to get off that bench, to get in the game, and to believe in yourself. So becoming your own best coach, well, maybe it might seem like a tall order. And I'm sure for a lot of people, it seems that way, especially if you're struggling, if you're feeling sapped, you know, by frustrations, depression, or if you're depleted by chronic anxiety and worry. But it's important to keep in mind that one important self-coaching principle, that feelings aren't necessarily facts. Just because you feel something doesn't mean it is. You have unlimited potential for liberating yourself from a life of struggle. You really do. You really have an unlimited potential. You know, you might, you might think this is uh, hyperbole, but, you know, human beings are incredibly resilient. And what we set our mind to, there's very few things we can't accomplish. And we see it all the time with human feats of unbelievable determination. Just as Fajar Singh, the, the so-called turbaned torpedo, who in 2011, at the age of 100, he completed a 26.2 marathon in Toronto. Or how about Herbert Nietzsche, an Australian free diver, who on one breath was able to dive 702 feet below the surface of the water. I don't think I could go six feet, to be honest with you. Or Dean Karnazes, an American ultramarathoner who completed 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days. And then there was Wim Iceman Huff, a Dutch adventurer who climbed Mount Everest and Mount Kilimanjaro wearing only shorts. So don't ever underestimate the power of determination or the human potential to turn the impossible into the possible. Well, if Lauren were here right now, she would be glad to tell you what time it is. She would say it's self-coaching pep talk time. In today's pep talk, when it comes to clinging to habits of insecurity, familiarity breeds contempt. Beware of the saying, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. All too often, we cling to the short-sighted safety of our controlling strategies. Over-controlling life may feel like a better option than risking self-trust, but if you truly want to live a more passionate, liberated, enjoyable life, then it's time to realize that there's only one devil, refusing to risk trusting self in life. Risk believing that you can let life unfold today without your usual anticipatory ruminations. It's the only way to prove to yourself that you actually will survive. You will, I guarantee it. Don't let insecurity tell you otherwise. So for now, I'm going to sign off and I'm going to risk believing that Lauren will make her appearance next week. And if she doesn't, I'm going to also risk self-trusting and believe that even without her, I shall prevail. That's what self-trust is all about. We don't have to know tomorrow. We just have to believe we'll handle it. So visit our website, selfcoaching.net, where you can learn more about our self-coaching philosophy 
And while you're there, check out my various books and videos and all that stuff. So until next time, remember that being victimized by emotional struggle, it's not an option. And by definition, victims are powerless. And you are not powerless. So remember, everything is hard until you make it simple. So join Lauren and me every week. And let's make it simple together. So if Lauren were here, I would be asking her, Lauren, do you know what time it is? And I'm sure she would say, it's self-coaching pep talk time. And today's pep talk, when it comes to clinging to habits of insecurity, familiarity breeds contempt. Beware of the saying, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. All too often, we cling to the short-sighted safety of our controlling strategies. Over-controlling life, it may feel like a better option than risking self-trust. But if you truly want to live a more passionate, liberated, enjoyable life, then it's time to realize that there's only one devil. And that's refusing to risk trusting self and life. Risk believing that you can let life unfold today without your usual anticipatory ruminations. It's the only way to prove to yourself that you actually will survive. And you will. I guarantee it. Don't let insecurity ever tell you otherwise. So for now, I'm going to sign off and I'm going to risk believing that Lauren will make her appearance next week. And if she doesn't, I'm going to also risk self-trusting and believe that even without her, I shall prevail. And that's what self-trust is all about. We don't have to know tomorrow. We just have to believe we'll handle it. So visit our website, selfcoaching.net, where you can learn more about our self-coaching philosophy and while you're there, check out my various books and videos and all that stuff. So until next time, remember that being victimized by emotional struggle, it's not an option. And by definition, victims are powerless. And you are not powerless. So remember, everything is hard until you make it simple. So join Lauren and me every week. And let's make it simple together. Believe in yourself. Reach out for your dreams. Don't surrender, there is more than it seems Hold on and fight, follow your heart This is your way, love is what you make